You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit JCastNetwork.org. Good morning, everybody. Uh, so we are uh, continuing our uh, study of uh, Sefer Achinuch and, uh, and thinking about the question of what, what, what's the point of Judaism. Uh, and uh, we're still in Parashat Mishpatim, which uh, is a, a large collection of uh, laws in the book of Exodus. Uh, and uh, we're, I wanted to look at uh, today um, something that is, in a way, not... Um, not so practical for most Jews, um, but is a uh, a major principle of uh, Jewish jurisprudence. Uh, in other words, uh, the way that uh, that that rabbis um, uh, decide matters of Jewish law, and therefore the way um, uh, traditionally Jewish people would be. Um, inclined to uh, observe Jewish law, um, uh, or, or depending on which community you are, uh, made to observe Jewish law. Um, and that is uh, the principle, um, that you should uh, follow the majority's position. Right? And so there are a few different uh, dimensions. When, 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 uh, when the Jewish community had its own system of, uh, of, of civil and criminal courts, um, then uh, following the majority um, uh, had, had very um, real consequences. Right? So if you had a panel of judges uh, and two voted to convict and one voted to, uh, to exonerate, um, then it would be a conviction. Um, but it works in other matters too. So when um, a different collections of sages have a disagreement about a point of Jewish law, um, uh, the, the, according to r- the rabbinic understanding of the Torah, um, we are supposed, this commandment tells us we're supposed to follow the, the majority of, uh, of, uh, majority opinion. Um, so, the most famous example of that is um, when there's a debate in the Talmud between the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai, um, we are uh, we almost always follow the opinion of the school of Hillel, uh, primarily because it was a more populous school. Um, there are some other reasons that the Talmud gives of why we, we follow the opinion of the school of Hillel, but that's actually, the, this, from the technical standpoint of, uh, of Jewish law, um, we follow because it's a larger school. Um, although, the, the, uh, just as an aside, the, um, the, the, the principle of following the majority um, isn't always applicable, right? So there are plenty of instances in the Talmud where uh, there are where there's a debate between two uh, um, uh, uh, two sages, um, and uh, you know neither one is a majority opinion because it's just two individual voices, and yet um, there are certain people that we follow um, uh, almost universally over other people. Um, well, we talked about the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai, but when it's Hillel versus Shammai, just those two individuals, we almost always follow uh, Hillel's opinion. Um, but there's uh, but there are other uh, um, examples of that too. 
Um, uh, and, uh, and there are various reasons uh, for that, but it's not technically this issue of following the, uh, the, the, the majority view. Um, in those cases, it's, uh, uh, it actually tends to be following the, uh, uh, the view of the person that, uh, that, that, that um, uh, makes um, observance, uh, um, uh, how to put it, easier for people, uh, less cumbersome for people, less oppressive on people's lives. Um, so in the case of Hillel versus Shammai, that's certainly true. And the other uh, um, reason that we're told for, for uh, Hillel over Shammai is Hillel's personal disposition and personal uh, 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 virtues um, were more um, uh, uh, amiable and agreeable than, uh, than, than Shammai's, although Shammai is held up as a, as a moral exemplar as well. Um, but uh, 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 but but it does it does and has applied in in all sorts of areas of uh, of Jewish life. So I'll give you another example that's a a really interesting one. Um, Rabbi Joseph Caro, who wrote uh, a, an important law code called the Shulchan Aruch, um, applied this principle in his law code uh, in the following way. He said that there were several major law codes that uh, preceded him. Um, one of which was Maimonides. Um, the other uh, was uh, um, the tour, um, which uh, uh, in, in itself almost always followed the opinion of the father of the tour, which is the Roche. Um, and, uh, and another who didn't exactly write a law code, uh, but, uh, but, but tried to compile the legal rulings of the Talmud, which is a, um, a, a, a guy named the Rith, um, Al-Fasi. And, uh, these are all the little sides around Cairo and the. Uh... So these are not the sides around Cairo. These are uh, the sides around Cairo. Are people came after Cairo to comment on Cairo? Okay. Um, uh, but what Cairo did is um, uh, he he wanted to follow the majority opinion of those three. So when when uh, there were two of the three of those. Uh, um, uh, Writers that agreed on a matter of Jewish law, he would codify the law according to the the two out of the three, rather than an analysis of the argumentation or something like that, um, which is probably the more traditional uh, method of um, of uh, codifying law. That's that's what Maimonides did, for instance. Maimonides um, applied some kind some of these principles of of you know, majority versus minority, etc. Um, when it co- comes to the actual um, uh, uh, teachings of the Talmud, uh, but nevertheless, um, uh, when it wasn't clear, um, would use analysis and logic and argumentation. Um, I mean, he never told us what his analysis and logic and argumentation were in codifying the laws, um, but that's what that's what he did. So, uh, uh, so then some of the commentators after Caro uh, in analyzing and and uh, um, d- discussing what he wrote. We'll go back and say, well, why did he choose, you know, the Rift's position when, uh, in this instance, Maimonides and the tour agreed, and he decided, so they have to explain why he did that. Um, uh, it's a it's a principle that is in some ways still followed today of a uh, falling majority, and in some ways not. Uh, the the conservative movement is uh, 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 sort of interesting in in this way, um, uh, in that uh, uh, individual conservative rabbis um, are understood to be uh, the mare de atra of their uh, local communities, um, and not bound by any. Um, per, any individual particular decisions of, uh, of Jewish law, past, present, or, or future, the rabbis of those communities get to decide. That's also true in a lot of ways in the Orthodox world, too, although there are a lot of 
in both contexts, there are a lot of social pressures um, uh, for, uh, for, for people to conform to certain kinds of norms. Um, but there's no um, um, uh, uh, official position um, except for a couple of things of, that conservative rabbis have to do um, in their communities. And those two things um, uh, are um, that, uh, that, that we can't uh, officiate intermarriages and that we can't officiate a marriage of someone who has not yet um, uh, had a get. Um, uh, and those are really the only two uh, things. Uh, and, and, and other than that, we can't violate uh, placement protocol for, for rabbis. <laughs> That's a, a somewhat different issue. But other than that, we're not really bound by any, any decision, despite the fact that the conservative movement has a, uh, a, a body that, um, that, that rules on matters of Jewish law called the Committee of Jewish Law and Standards. Um, but that's really supposed to be an advisory body. Um, so often the advice is good advice, and it's uh, often followed one way or another by conservative rabbis, but it doesn't have to be. Um, the law committee itself, though, sort of follows this principle of, uh, of uh, majority rule, um, but not really. So you can be, uh, there are 20-something members of the law committee, um, you can uh, have an, uh, a valid opinion of the law committee so long as your ruling gets six votes, okay? But that's not a majority. Um, so that would be considered, I don't even think they have the categories anymore of minority opinion versus majority opinion. If your ruling gets six votes, and it's an acceptable position by the law committee. I think I'm right about that. Um, there, there's one we're actually going to discuss tonight at the religious committee which deals whether a non-Jew can open or close the ark. Had six votes saying it was okay. It's a valid opinion. Yeah. Uh, are you sure it only had, that one only had six votes? I think votes? it only had six. Yeah. It certainly was not a majority. Yeah. Whatever it was, but I think it only had six. But it had six. Yeah. So. Um, I, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, uh, tshuva. Um, um, I, I did read it. That, I I don't remember it all that well. I'll, I'll save my. I'll, uh, I have. I have uh, the the conclusion that it comes to. I I've, uh, it probably isn't surprising to a lot of people that that I that I support. Although the um, um, I, I have, you're not the only rabbi in the building who said that. By yeah. the way, um, the, the, <laughs> rabbi the, Rosenberg also has problems with their reasoning. But yeah, the, 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 the well, the problem with the reasoning of it. I mean, I'm not uh, taking you yeah, way off track. Yeah. Anyway, the, anyway. All right. So. Um, <laughs> Uh, but uh, anyway, so the, uh, the 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 law committee sort of follows this uh, position, but uh, but not exactly. But the position itself is a very interesting one, and uh, and one that um, uh, 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 has uh, had a lot of um, uh, influence, I think, in uh, in in Western civilization. Um, so here's what the Sefer Chinuch says as to the reason behind it. Why the reason that we follow the majority? I mean. You know, we we sort of take it for granted in some ways because in our democracy, um, uh, um, the we have a system in which the majority often rules, usually rules, um, although not universally. Um, sometimes you need a supermajority to rule, um, and sometimes um, uh, individual members of government with uh, substantial amounts of power decide to. Um, override the rules of the, uh, the, 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 the rulings of the majority when they perceive that it's taking too long for the majority to get things done. So, um, now, uh, you know, it's less problematic when there's somebody in that position that, uh, whose agenda I'm sympathetic with, uh, but, uh, 
but but still potentially problematic. But we so we sort of take it for granted that uh, that the majority is going to rule. But but um, I think it um, serves to go back to the question of why it is that we should let the majority decide things. Why it is that we should follow the majority um, instead of I don't know following the best most persuasive argument. Um, uh, uh, so that's a, I think, a, a really uh, a valid question. Um, there was a um, maybe one of my favorite uh, figures from American political history is uh, John C. Calhoun. Anybody know John C. Calhoun is? He was a Southern senator, as I remember. He was a Southern senator, eventually vice president under Andrew Jackson, um, and uh, he was from South Carolina. Uh, one of the architects of. Um, a doctrine called nullification, um, which uh, which is uh, coming back in vogue in, in our time, unfortunately, uh, but was uh, in vogue um, thanks to John C. Calhoun among uh, the slaveholding states in the early 19th century. Um, uh, and what it said was that uh, that the states reserved the right to nullify within their territory any um, any acts of Congress, right, by being party to. Um, by being party to the Constitution, um, they also reserve the right to not in, to not uphold the Constitution um, uh, uh, if they decide if their state conventions decide that they don't agree with the with a provision of the Constitution or an act of Congress by its constitutional authority. Um, so that's the doctrine of nullification. It 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 uh, you can see bleeds very nicely into what ultimately became a doctrine of secession. Right? We can not only have the right to nullify an act of Congress, but we can uh, uh, dissolve our um, our agreement to the to the uh, constitutional compact. Um, so so John C. Calhoun is really the father of secession in that in that regard. Um, but one of the uh, philosophies his um, uh, constitutional interpretation that led to nullification was this idea called this is why I like him, not because of his you know, pro-slavery attitude uh, but his, uh, his idea of the concurrent majority Okay, and so what he said was that uh, that the that the Constitution um, grants the right of majority rule. However, majority rule can also create tyranny and oppression of the minority, and so therefore the minority has the has the right to assent or not to assent to the decisions of the majority by virtue of being in this compact. And if the minority doesn't agree to be governed by the majority, then the majority has to rethink its position and and go back to the drawing table. They can essentially the minority has the right to veto any act of the majority. Sounds like Israel. <laughs> it does sound like Israel. <laughs> um, and you know, and so I mean, from from a from a practical standpoint, it's crazy, right? Uh, because you could never uh, accomplish anything. Um, I have to tell you, from a personal standpoint, I sit in meetings all the time where where the majority is, you know, uh, very clearly moving in one direction, and I sit in my head and I say, "Ah, oh, Calhoun," right? Like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, because you know, uh, um, uh, sometimes you the majority is not sometimes the majority is not right, right? Uh, and uh, and and does things that are against the best interest of uh, of the collective or or. or the uh, or, or the population, um, and you want to be able to say, you know, stop what you're doing. You know, th- this minority or this individual knows better than the majority. And so, why is it that even in those cases we should follow the majority? So that's uh, so that's what uh, um, uh, we're asking here. Uh, and here's what uh, the Sefer Chinuch says. Um, 
the root of the precept, I'm on 3.13, the root of the precept lies the reason that we were thus commanded to strengthen the observance and fulfillment of our faith. For we were we commanded, observe the Torah as you are able to grasp the intention of its truth. Every single Jew, in other words, observe the Torah according to your own understanding. Um, every single Jew would say, I'm inclined to think the truth of this particular matter is thus and so. And then, even if all the world should hold the opposite, he would have no right to carry out that particular matter in opposition to the truth as he understands it. In other words, if everybody had the right to interpret uh, and follow Torah according to their own uh, 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 understanding, uh, and not have to uh, um, live the way every other Jew practices or understands Torah the way every other Jew understands it, in, if there's an, a matter in which, I can't think probably very few, where... Uh, where, where every Jew interprets the Torah one way and you uh, stand alone interpreting it another way. So, for example, you know, um, the word chazir in the Torah is usually understood to mean uh, pig, right? And so 99.9% of the Jewish world, even if they don't keep kosher, says that the Torah forbids eating pork. And you alone interpret the word chazir differently to mean... I don't know, octopus, right? Uh, I mean, everybody, well, that, maybe that's not a good example. Uh, cows, right? Um, and so you interpret the Torah to say that Jews aren't allowed to eat beef. Um, so, uh, so everyone is saying swine, but you say that the Torah is forbidding beef, right? And, um, uh, and, and, uh, and, uh, if we were to have a situation in which um, we could follow the Torah that way, where people, it was up to individual autonomy, the result would be a disaster. The Torah would become as if many Torahs, since everyone would judge and rule according to the limitation of his mind. But now that we were commanded explicitly to accept the view of the majority of sages about, about it, about uh, whatever commandment we're talking about, there is one Torah for us all. This is our great way of survival with it, and we are not to budge from their ruling no matter what. Okay, so there's a few things I want to say about this. The first is that he's making an argument for normativity, right? Uh, that, um, that, that what binds Jews together, what uh, holds Jews together, uh, what makes uh, Judaism recognizable from one community to the next, from one generation to the next, um, is a sense of um, uh, um, assent to, um, uh, to the, uh, to the, to the broader understanding of given commandments and given points of, of Jewish law. And the only way to do that is to have, um, first of all, established jurisprudential uh, principles altogether, uh, but, uh, but, but, but more so to follow the majority, right? So, um, so that we should sort of acquiesce, um, we should give up our own personal autonomy and ability to interpret Torah however we want to the majority in favor of, uh, uh of the positive good of having, um, uh, shared values and shared practices. Um, and, uh, and, and he's probably right, 
uh, that uh, that this has been an element of Jewish survival. Um, has been uh, a sense um, that uh, that that we should, generally speaking, agree to do um, uh, what uh, um, uh, agree to follow what the uh, majority position is on a matter of of law. Um, however, I have to say that um, it's it's not entirely true, right? So, um, for a couple reasons. The first is, um, especially in the modern period. Um, uh, uh, but even in the medieval period and ancient period, um, there, people did have individual autonomy to a certain degree to interpret the Torah the way they, that they wanted and to live the Torah the, the way that they wanted. Um, uh, it's certainly true uh, today. Um, and, uh, and one way of looking at it is that it's, uh, you know, destroying the foundations of Judaism. Another way of looking at it is that, uh, um, is that it's, uh, it's, it's creating a, a great, um, and welcome, uh, diversity of approach and practice within the Jewish community that's actually, uh, of benefit. Um, uh, it's, it's a good thing when we can, um, see other groups of Jews doing things differently and let the free market decide, um, what is, uh, um, a, a good Jewish way forward and what's not a good Jewish way forward. And, I mean, there's a really great example of that happening right now within orthodoxy. I mean, orthodoxy, um, it has, has seen and experienced, um, the, um, the, first of all, the, the great contribution of uh, women to its communities, but also the expansion uh, of the roles of women in the general population and equality of women in the general population, and have seen that in um, in other Jewish communities, um, the the expansion of uh, women's roles in religious life has uh, has not. Uh, um, uh, has not hurt those communities. If anything, it's strengthened those communities. Um, and, uh, and so, um, Orthodox communities now are, um, beginning some to, uh, to experiment with, uh, ways of expanding access of, of women, uh, to, uh, to religious rights. It's being met in some Orthodox circles with a lot of opposition. But in, in, in a way, the free market's gonna decide this one, right? Um, those communities that, uh, that, that are inclined to, um, to uh, explore expanding roles for women are gonna do it. Um, and then we'll see whether or not those experiments are successful and uh, within those communities, not counting the outside pressure. And eventually, in the course of history, most of the Orthodox world will have, uh, will, will have more or less equality for women in the way you see it in the conservative world right now, I, I predict in a hundred years. Um, it may have been faster had the conservative movement not done it first. Uh, but, uh, um, uh, but, uh, but, but I think it's, it's likely to happen. So, um, so the idea that, I mean, it, it, it's also not necessarily true historically. I mean, the, um, there have always been many Torahs. Um, the, uh, the rabbis of the Talmud themselves say, Shivim Panim Torah, that there are 70 faces of Torah, which is another way of saying essentially that there are infinite amount of Torahs and, um, and, and not, any one of them in particular is inherently valid. I was just going to say the geographic diversity of Jews around the world uh, through World War II, and as they try to come together in Israel and still try to come together, you see this all the time, and it is a problem to have these chief rabbis uh, dictating, well, this is the only way it can be. Right. Uh, 
you know, if somebody in Africa developed a practice over thousands of years, who's to say it's wrong? Right, right. And the, and the, uh, the, 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 the question then comes in, well, okay, a majority of who? Right. right. A majority of what sages, right? And so uh, in a different piece of this that I didn't photocopy, um, the page before from Sefer Chinuch, he says it has to be to uh, it has to be a, a group of sages that are that are equal in uh, in learning and authority. Okay, fine, but I could have you know ten Ethiopian rabbis who are very learned and ten uh, uh, German rabbis who are very learned and get them in a room together and not have a uh, and not have a clear majority. And even if I did have a clear majority, it wouldn't necessarily be the uh, a right for any one of those communities. So, um, so it's a real problem when you get to the question of, okay, you know, that's fine. We'll follow the majority, but who counts as the body where that uh, that, that that where we get to decide the majority? I for, mean, you yeah. even mentioned Cairo, and you know, as you said, uh, Cairo was the Sephardi view. So the Ashkenazi had to be heard on it. <laughs> That's right. So you have uh, Isilis. Oh, the, what's interesting about Caro is, okay, so he chose three uh, uh, very prominent uh, law codes to decide. False party. <laughs> uh, uh, well, the tour uh, straddles the, okay. the, the border. But yes, they're all Sephardi. Um, the, the Roche was uh, Sephardi, the tour's father. The tour lived mainly in Germany, so he, he sort of um, has, has both worlds. But... Um, uh, uh, but yes, right. So all Sephardi, and uh, and there were plenty of other uh, um, legal scholars that uh, that Caro could have relied on in in, in formulating the Shulchan Aruch. But he chose those three uh, for probably good reasons. But he, j- he he selected those three in 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 American government. So we know that there are you know we we know what's going to constitute our majority. It's it's uh, you know. Um, however many is fifty percent plus one of uh, the House of Representatives and and the Senate, right? Uh, Word that it was that simple. <laughs> I understand, uh, but uh, but uh, in in Judaism it's much more complicated because we don't have um, a, an established governmental body like that. Uh, we never really did. Uh, maybe the Sanhedrin, but who knows? It, who knows? <laughs> um, it's it's not clear that uh, that the Sanhedrin, as it's imagined in Jewish law. Um, Ever existed really, or if it did, how long it ever really existed for uh, as a, as a, um, a body with any kind of authority. So, um, so it's a, it's a tough question. Um, but normativity is a, is a, uh, um, is important, um, uh, and and the sense that if we follow the majority, um, I mean, you would have normativity even if you follow the min- minority. If you, everybody agreed, we'll, we'll follow, we'll do minority <laughs> rule instead of majority rule. You would still have normativity, uh, but it'd be less uh, broadly acceptable, I think. So that's, the, but but normativity is a good thing for a for any community and, and especially religious community. You need to know what's expected of you and what you could expect of other people, and and uh, and and that there's continuity over time. You don't want uh, uh, a religious tradition that changes every five years. Um, um, uh, you don't want one that doesn't change at all, but you don't want one that changes every five years. Um, and then let's, uh, a little bit further. So by obeying their commandments, we complete and perfect our observance of God's commandments. As we complete and perfect our observance of God's commandments. And even if the sages should fail sometimes to arrive at the truth, perish the thought, <laughs> the sin would be upon them and not on us. This is the reason why our sages of blessed memory taught in the tractate Horayot, which is a uh, Talmud tractate Horayot, that if a Beit Din made a mistake in a ruling and an individual acted on their word, the duty to bring an offering and atonement lies on the court. 
uh, and not on the individual at all, except in certain cases as explained there. Okay, so we have two reasons, basically, right? One is normativity. The other is, um, actually, I think, a, a very uh, American idea, or the American idea is a very Sefer uh, Achinuch idea, um, uh, which is that uh, um, a belief that the majority will, will more often um, get it right. Um, In a, in, in, a, in, in a realm in which there's not really such a thing as objectively right, um, such as legal interpretation or uh, textual interpretation, um, what it's basically saying is that, um, um, is that uh, um, the, the, the majority um, may not know the truth, but we prioritize normativity over truth. Because truth may not really exist. Um, and right is uh, determined not only by how close is this to um, the, uh, an accurate understanding of the text, but how uh, appropriate is this um, interpretation and this ruling for the community that we're, we're deciding it for. Right, so, um, um, so those are different theories of, uh, of of legal interpretation. In one theory, there is an objectively right uh, interpretation of the text. You have this among the Supreme Court too, where you have constitutional literalists, and they say, you know, this is exactly what the Constitution meant, and there's one right way to view what the Constitution says, and uh, and uh, another approach that says. Uh, no, the Constitution says what the court means, what the court says that the Constitution says, and, uh, and, and how you know what the court says the Constitution says is what a majority of justices say the court says the Constitution says. Um, and, uh, and, and they decide not only based on um, uh, their legal analysis and their uh, attempt to understand what the framers of the Constitution meant, uh, but also what seems to be appropriate and good for the society that they're making those judgments for. Um, and the belief of our democracy, and I think of the Torah too, is that the majority will more likely have its finger on that pulse. That it will, it's more likely to know what's, uh, what, what, what's, what's good for the community. Um, because it is more likely to have a, a greater amount of voices representing the community. It's the majority, after all. So it's not exactly um, uh, what's uh, what, what's truth, because um, the uh, because it recognizes that they could easily make a mistake, and there's no way of really knowing ever if they made a mistake. Um, so the the perfection that it's talking about in observance is um, is is a sense of um, uh, do we have uh, a plurality of leaders that can um, that that can that can make decisions for the benefit of the community um, that, uh, that, that are um, recognizable in their form and create a degree of normativity, um, and that is preferable to what could be a paralyzing and maybe even harmful pursuit of absolute truth. Sounds um, like a pretty good response to the Catholic Church, which, had, you know, which rejected this yes. and went to this absolute hierarchical definition of what's correct. Uh, you know, for their own valid reasons. I'm not, but it certainly seems to me this is, you know, it's it's following a completely different path. That's for sure. It is. I mean, it's not the only path the Jewish tradition could have followed. Correct. Right? Um, uh, you know, it, the the rabbis made a decision, probably a good decision, 
um, to, uh, uh, to to turn um, uh, uh, to, to veer away from the pursuit of truth to the pursuit of justice, right, and and uh, the pursuit of uh, the the good rather than the perfect, which is the pursuit of the truth. Um, so they they turned away from the prophetic model to uh, to the say royal model, right, where there's a, a, an execution of of judgment. Um, and um, uh, probably for the good of, uh, of the Jewish community over time, um, we're seeing now, um, uh, in some ways, the limitations we've seen over time. First of all, the harm that can come with having an absolute monarch of the, of the church, but also some of the limitations of that approach um, in dealing with things like you know, uh, corruption and, uh, um, and, and, uh, internal conflict and, uh, uh, but they've always had that almost from day one, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but less visible right. in some ways. Um, uh, not so, so much today, but it was right. So the, the benefit of the Jewish system is that there's still, there's still, um, corruption, um, uh, among the rabbinate, um, especially in parts of the world where the rabbinate has uh, legal authority. Um, but, uh, but because it's more of a democratic system, it, there's more accountability. Um, uh, and there's always been more accountability of, of leaders. Um, and that's a good thing, I think.